ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. George Orwell knew how much language had the power to change minds and to inspire or enrage or repress. But exactly how does language shape reality? Let's look at some of the mechanisms right now on Life Matters and also how we can recognise the truth behind the message when politicians or corporations or lobby groups want to recruit us to their cause. Dr Howard Manns is a Senior Lecturer in Linguistics at Monash University. Howard, great to have you on the program. Great to be here. Now, why can language be so persuasive? Given that we've grown up with it, we all learn how to speak it and write it, surely we know it's wiles. Uh, You would think so, but uh, really, even though we're surrounded by language, I don't know that we necessarily pay enough attention to how people are manipulating language. And what's particularly interesting in this day and time is that whenever we live in eras of mistrust, we tend to rely more on our personal feelings. So mistrust of like politicians and the media? uh, Mistrust of politicians and the media. I mean, a recent poll in the U.S., found that uh, Americans preferred, uh, what was it, gonorrhea to politicians. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So whenever we do mistrust the media and politicians and people like this, typically we rely on our personal feelings. And there's a big industry of PR professionals, political pundits, people like that who are out to design language to tap into that. So how much do we assume we're just getting information uh, in language and what else are we getting? That's a great question, and I think a lot of the time we presume we're getting information or we're presuming that other people aren't getting information, but really what's happening is they're tapping into an emotion. Uh, a great example of this is uh, the recent um, uh, the recent uh, referendum vote and the slogan, if you don't know, vote no. And the response to this from a lot of people was, well, if you don't know, find out. And I think what they missed was actually this slogan had very little to do with information, was actually just tapping into personal feeling that some people felt. And again, this is the sort of thing that political geographers are telling us that people do at times of mistrust. Political geographers? Political geographies, uh, geographers, the kind of people that are out there, um, you know, looking at the reasons that we make our choices and looking at those underlying reasons that we make our choices rather than all this surface stuff that we think we know. This is why we're looking at language today, because it affects how we react to policy ideas. You, Howard, you mentioned the if you don't know, vote no. That's not just the words, is it? That's the rhythm of the language. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the really, really interesting thing that I think we miss about language that, um, you know, whether or not we believe a message or how we feel about a message can be distilled down to even the vowels that we use. And there's this uh, there's this great uh, strategy, great as in very effective strategy, I should say. Machiavellian, yeah, <laughs> um, effective. Uh, which is rhyme is reason. And what this refers to is whenever we come across a rhyme, even though it's counterintuitive, a rhyme is actually more memorable. It's more trustworthy and it can really impact whether we make a decision. And in fact, there's a really famous uh, consumer study where they were looking at phrases to two t-shirts for $21 or two t-shirts for $19. And even though the latter deal is better, people are still drawn to actually the former deal because it has alliteration. 
Wow, humans are pretty interesting creatures, aren't they? <laughs> Not always in a good way. Well, how much does linguistics overlap with psychology? It sounds like there's a lot of uh, enmeshing. Exactly. I mean, we work a lot with social psychologists whenever we're researching these sorts of things. And we try to determine, okay, well, how will the selection of an individual word or uh, phrase affect people? Uh, another great example of this was here in Victoria. A couple of years ago, we had the Victorian Assisted Dying Bill. And if you look at the kind of language that got used in that, people who were in favor of the bill were using the phrase um, assisted dying, but people who were opposed to the bill were at great pains to avoid that phrase and instead were using the words euthanasia or they were using the word suicide. And there's a very good reason for this, actually, um, which is that there was a Pew study a couple of years before our bill uh, that found in the U.S. that if you asked Americans if they supported uh, using painless means to end somebody's life, they would support it by a rate of 70%. If you ask them conversely uh, something about suicide, uh, same thing, same outcome, uh, but support dropped to 50 Wow. And so I guess that's the the kind of thing known and used by uh, either side of the kind of pro-choice, pro-life debate or climate change versus warmists, for example. Uh, there are so many examples, aren't there, when we start to bend our minds to it? There are. And what's, uh, what's kind of scary sometimes to me and people who study this issue is how much of the language that we actually use on a daily basis was designed by pollsters. Um, Such as? I'm worried now. (laughs) Climate change. Um, So the thing is, is there are people who argue, of course, that climate change is a more accurate way to discuss it and describe it. But uh, people forget that until Frank Luntz and some conservative pollsters really began to push climate change, we often refer to it as global warming. And uh, Luntz and his pollsters determined that if they could just get us to take up this phrase climate change, that it was much less scary and that people would be inclined not to act as quickly. I'm speaking with Dr. Howard Manns and I'm getting progressively more depressed as we (laughs) chat. He's a senior lecturer in linguistics at Monash University and we're looking at the power of language to shape how we feel about things and how we deal with them because they're very closely related. And a a phrase that one of my producers brought to my attention the other day that Qantas has used in court, one of their filings suggested that they're not selling tickets to a particular flight, in quotes, but a bundle of contractual rights. How do corporations get away with this stuff? Is that just a quirk of our legal system? Uh, I suppose it's worth, in the first instance, asking who the language is for, of course. I mean, Qantas isn't going to go out and sell us bundles of rights in their advertising campaigns. Um, well, don't never say never. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, but... Um, Really, it is a quirk of our legal system there. They're trying to kind of wiggle out of language. What we forget about language is, you know, other than it being an emotional thing, is that oftentimes the meaning for language is above the word. You know, it's beyond the word. And we don't always even hear the same thing. A great example of this was a couple of years ago, people talked about Donald Trump's reading levels. And with Donald Trump's reading levels, if you test him, he comes out normally between fourth grade level or sixth grade level. And people who were a bit left-leaning kind of jumped on that and went, oh, you know, he's he's dumb. 
But the flip side of that is actually that he's very, very accessible. And he's speaking a way to his audience that is very accessible. He's using a lot of what we would talk about as linguists as the old English core. These are the oldest words. They're typically the really, really short words. Kind of the difference between uh, old English guts versus the French courage. Yep. Um, whenever we're using these words, it influences people. And look, if Donald Trump is stupid for using these kinds of words, I'm afraid so is Abraham Lincoln, so is William, uh, not William Churchill, <laughs> um, but so is Churchill. So so are these other politicians who are just looking to be more accessible. So oftentimes we can take this same thing, but view it differently depending on whatever our own feelings and uh, perspectives are. Well, and that was really illuminating, wasn't it? Because it, it made it clear that some people are feeling very alienated by what they perceive as the highfalutin language of the elites. So it was a really useful political moment in some way. We've had a text about, uh, interestingly, swear words, which are those short, punchy, old English words. You know, that's why they're so powerful, isn't it? They, they go back a long way for English speakers. And Margaret says there's a lot of misogynist language to call out, calling someone a pussy or a C word. Uh, and she goes on when you answer a question and someone says, are you sure? Isn't that really saying, I don't believe you are correct? Well spotted, Margaret. Um, Howard, when it comes to business and politicians, exactly how much thought and research? Is it going into what we perceive as these kind of off-the-cuff, casual man of the people or woman of the people kind of remarks? Oh, there's a lot of research that goes into it. And um, it's interesting with uh, with the recent uh, referendum that there was a particular approach to the, to the pamphlet, if you read it, which was very folksy. Um, you know, you wouldn't buy a car without trying it. You wouldn't buy a house without inspecting it, these sorts of folksy phrases. And what's really interesting about this strategy is you can trace this strategy actually back to the fossil fuel industry in uh, the 90s. And there was this organization called ICE that was made up of the different fossil fuel energy companies. And they wanted to figure out what kind of messages would resonate with what audiences, but also where were the audiences that would pick these messages up? And they found that there was a particular strategy that they could use, in particular with older men with uh, lower educational attainment. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But they realized that these men wanted their messages kind of uh, packaged to them in these very folksy ways. And again, there's nothing wrong with packaging them in this way for people to take up. But this is something that uh, this this line of thought has really been leaning into since since the 90s. Well, and when you say folksy, that's another way of saying accessible, isn't it? It's like you don't have to have been to university. You don't have to have operated in a, an environment that uses lots of long words and what people might think of as jargon. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly the case. And, you know, I sometimes get asked about political metaphor. You know, uh, these days, Donald Trump is using a lot of uh, witch hunt, of course, which is kind of egregious if you think about the history of witch hunts and what they were used for. Um, But, you know, should we ban political metaphor? Well, if we ban political metaphor, we end up losing other great stuff like Ben Chiefley's Light on the Hill. You know, it's not like metaphor is bad. It's just that some of these slippery usages maybe should be called out a little bit more. 
Also, if we banned political metaphor, we'd have about 5% of the utterances left to work with. That might be useful. I don't know. <laughs> I guess sometimes it goes wrong, doesn't it? Because there's the there's the pub test versus the Canberra bubble, and sometimes mm. things go spectacularly pear-shaped. Have you got examples of that? Oh, it's going <laughs> pear-shaped. Um, look, there's there's really – what's really funny these days, I think, some sometimes is that because of the Canberra bubble, um, we're not always suckers, I suppose, is, is one way to put it. And a great example of this was uh, Tony Abbott whenever he was running on you know no new taxes and then immediately when they got into power they began pushing a levy which <laughs> if you look it up in the dictionary one of the three words that's used for tax or for levy is in fact a tax oddly because it is <laughs> I know that it brings us back to that you know calling different things different things doesn't it like a death tax versus an inheritance tax very very powerful what about journalism this kind of many tentacled institution mm. that you and I have are engaged in right now, the way that we present events to the public has a massive impact, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, we can see this around us now with the Gaza campaign, but maybe to choose one that's a little bit further back, um, just just for the sake of time and history, we can look back at South Africa in the 90s and a lot of the reporting that happened on the apartheid and violence during apartheid. And, if you look at newspapers and if you do a, an analysis of newspapers at the time, whenever it was black violence, it, the black violence was usually discussed in the plural, in the subject, and it was usually really aggressive words like attacks or kills and things like that. So when you say the plural, like groups of people rather than individuals did X. Yep, groups, but uh, but also not just groups, mobs and crowds, these very scary words typically got used. And we can contrast this with the way that white violence was discussed. And whenever white violence was discussed, it was always individuals. Um, and also it was always in the passive, you know. And not only was it in the passive, the people doing the violence were actually buried in a prepositional phrase. So it was always um, extremist individuals and you know it was also incidental it was kind of like there was also violence committed by a white extremist so essentially hiding responsibility under under your sofa you know yep so we see that even now don't we with the kind of lone wolf shooter idea in the states not contextualized uh, in in the yeah the the history of violence or the political beliefs they might or might not have how just to finish up with obviously our listeners are going to want to know how to avoid this you know we're going to be reading the newspaper very carefully with regard to uh, uh, how they're phrasing things. What are your tips? Um, I think one tip is really just to pay attention to what words are being used and how you're being manipulated by those words, um, but really taking a much, much closer look to it. A, a great example is, you know, look for those weasel words. Weasel words are those words that uh, suck the life out of the words next to them. A great example of that is many. Uh, if there's ever an example, if people tell you, for instance, uh, many indigenous people do not support this. This, and you happen to know that exactly it's either 59 to 83%, depending on the poll, then don't fall for many. And I would say the same for a lot of the words that get used these days. Would, could, many. Mistakes were made. Run a mile from that one, of course. Yep. Weasel Words is a really interesting uh, book to look up as well. What a fascinating chat. I could go on for hours, but I can't. Uh, Dr. Howard Manns, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Howard Manns is a senior lecturer in linguistics at Monash University, 
lots of people uh, coming up with uh, examples themselves. Dog whistles in phrases, especially in the last referendum, says Greg. Oh, Greg, if we had the time. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.